This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Army's Night Court budget review process is continuing into the Biden administration. Acting Secretary of the Army John Whitley told the House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee the service is building risk into its budget for the coming year through that process. Former Army Secretary and Defense Secretary Mark Esper started the Night Court process in 2018. The Navy ship Bonhomme Richard is on its way to Texas for scrap. The ship caught fire in San Diego Harbor last July 12th and burned for four days. USNI News reports international shipbreaking in Brownsville, Texas will take the ship apart after the Navy harvests components the fire didn't damage. Senators from Maryland and Virginia are asking President Biden to push the Justice Department and General Services Administration to finalize a plan to move the headquarters of the FBI. Senators Ben Cardin and Chris Van Hollen of Maryland and Tim Kaine and Mark Warner of Virginia write in a letter to the White House the process to replace FBI HQ started 10 years ago. The letter says Congress has already appropriated nearly a billion dollars for the effort. The Office of Management and Budget has new rules for the Technology Modernization Fund. The guidance gives agencies more flexibility to pay back the loans over time, or maybe not at all. Alan Thomas is Chief Operating Officer at IntelliBridge. He's former Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. Alan, welcome. Uh, Hugely positive reviews for the idea of changing the rules for the Technology Modernization Fund. What do these new rules look like to you, and what's the potential impact for agencies and for the volume of the TMF? Well, it's good to be with you again, Francis. Yeah, big big changes, right? The memo that came out on uh, on May fourth. I mean, essentially, they're you know they're changing OMB and GSA are changing what they want, uh, when they want it, and how agencies are going to are, are going to uh, potentially repay the funds, right? So they created these four what they're calling high priority proposal categories. So that's for modernizing high priority systems, for cybersecurity, for public facing digital services, and for cross gov services and infrastructure which is pretty broad, right? I mean, you could essentially drive uh, drive a truck through that. Uh, and then they've changed the the repayment rules, right? So there's still the option of um, good old fashioned, what I would call classic full repayment, which is we loan you the money, you pay it all back. But there's also what they call partial repayment and then so-called uh, minimal repayment, which I think potentially is a dangerous concept in, uh, in, in, in Washington, right? Because that might, in my mind, that might mean uh, that might mean zero. But look, they've given agencies a target of what uh, kind of of what to shoot for in terms of the kinds of projects they want to see. And I think most importantly, they've put a deadline out there um, to really get the flow of projects going. I asked this question not to imply that it's a bad thing necessarily, but if the repayment in a particular case, if minimal repayment does turn into zero, what's the difference between working through the TMF and just a regular appropriated thing as far as getting the project done? I understand the budgeting construct. But what's the difference to the agency? Or maybe there is no difference, and maybe that's the point, Alan. Well, I think I think you get you get some expertise, right, and some insight and some guidance uh, from from the from the TMF board. Uh, now, look, I'd like to see a little broader set of skills on there. I think the board is 
uh, is a little long in terms of uh, career CIO skills, which certainly is an appropriate skill set to have on the board. I think it'd be good to have some acquisition and finance folks on there as well. But I think you do get you do get the benefit of the board's insight uh, and guidance and potential ability to sort of connect your project to other things going on in government that you might not get just through the traditional appropriations process. So I think I, I do think there's some there's some uh, there's some additional value there for for agencies. What's the benefit to adding uh, financial management and acquisition expertise to the board that maybe they're not getting now and will need as they scale to the degree that they potentially can scale? Well, look, I think just just having some diversity of opinion and skill sets in the room when you're evaluating investments and thinking about how they might fit in kind of a portfolio effect across the government makes a lot of sense. You know, finance people, acquisition people tend to ask different kinds of questions than technology people. Uh, and having all those sorts of questions asked as you're evaluating projects, I think, will ultimately lead uh, to to better decisions. You know, I would note when I when I was on the board, we did have a little a little broader mix uh, of skill sets in there, and I think just over time, it's gotten you know it's gotten a little CIO, CIO heavy. Again, CIOs should absolutely be represented on the board, no no question. But I think some diversity of skill sets and viewpoints will probably ultimately produce better investment decisions. What do you, and the investment decision piece of it is exactly, I think, the right way to frame this. This has been the point of the TMF and it was the point of the revolving funds at the individual agencies. That was the spirit of the original legislation. What happens to continue to drive that spirit forward, Alan? What has to happen in the policymaking area and what has to happen at the individual agencies in the execution area to make the, the, the original intended spirit of this legislation fulfill its potential? Well, I think, I think if you're talking specifically about repayment, uh, you know, I think the board does have to be careful and they really do need to pick a mix of projects some that will actually that will provide full repayment, some that will provide partial, and you know some that will be that will be minimal. I mean, it, it does bear watching over time. You'd hate to see you, you got the billion dollars, which is great, right? You'd hate to see uh, in a few years that the fund has dwindled and can't actually make a next round of investments. I mean, the beauty of a revolving fund is you sort of you know you create this mechanism where you can continually make investments and continue to modernize things and drive and drive improvement. You'd, you'd, hate, you'd hate to see that sort of uh, die on the vine, right? I don't think, I certainly don't think that's the intent here. Uh, and I do think kind of lessening some of the repayment rules may encourage some agencies who are on the sidelines to, to get in the game, which, which should be great, but it does, does bear watching over time. So that's an interesting concept, Alan, because I, maybe I've been thinking about this entirely wrong. When I hear a billion dollars going to the fund, I hear a billion dollars going, not a billion dollars available for the fund. And maybe it makes sense to spend down to to leave a pad of $250 million or something like that so the fund can perpetuate itself. Is that what you're thinking about there when, when you uh, talk about that concept? Uh, I think I think you might always want to have a little bit of a reserve. You know, I think that's a kind of prudent management concept. But really, if you're getting some repayment back over time, you're you're you know you're you're replenishing that right so may, may, maybe you do have a threshold which you don't want to go below and you make sure that you kind of always able to to uh you know to, to replenish up, up up to that level again it's just going to depend on the mix of projects that they fund and sort of you know how 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 repayment happens i look it's human nature right people are probably going to go for minimal or partial repayment projects versus versus full repayment projects 
Um, so it's just again, it's something it's something to watch uh, as time as time goes on. And and yeah, maybe maybe you do set a little bit of a floor, right? And if you kind of get below that, then then you think a little differently about the investments that you make. With about thirty seconds left, is that bad necessarily? If organizations, if agencies go primarily for the minimal uh, repayment uh, strata. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, look, the memo said, hey, we're in a crisis, right? COVID and an economic crisis and, a, and sort of big cybersecurity issues like around the solar winds hack. So, you know, for things like that, we're, we're going to we want to fund those projects immediately. We're not so worried about repayment. We think there's sort of other pressing problems. I'm OK with that. Right. The question is, when 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 are we out of the crisis? Right. And when when potentially does the fund go back to sort of, um, you know, a, a true full repayment model, which I think was the original the original intent of that. The other thing you got to watch for is, you know, sometimes if you take the pressure of repayment off, sometimes projects don't get executed as quickly, right? Again, hu human nature. I give you money. If, if I'm expecting you to pay it back, you're likely to invest that money more quickly and start generating the returns. If I if I tell you, oh, you don't have to pay it back, you may take a little more time than you than you normally would. Uh, so again, something I just something I think that bear, bears watching going uh, going forward. Alan Thomas, thanks as always. Great to see you. Good to see you. Up next, the top two reasons this year's defense policy bill gets a late start. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the delay means for the Defense Department's calendar. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Senator Jack Reed, says he will hold off on marking up this year's National Defense Authorization Act. The markups will happen in July now, and the Senate will use the extra time to consider nominees for some of the top posts in the Defense Department. Roger Zakheim's director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library Foundation and Institute. He's former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. Roger, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. This delay of the NDAA, there's a lot of reasons for it. Senator Reid said one of the reasons is the delay in the release of the budget request from the uh, Biden administration. This is potentially good news, bad news, though, isn't it, if they are able to move some of these nominees in the meantime? Yeah, the uh, Armed Services Committees can't do their work with a skinny budget. They need the fat budget with all the details. And as you noted, that's coming later in the year. Senator Reid, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, said, OK, well, I'm not going to go ahead and sit around here and wait for the budget. We're going to move on the almost 20 nominees that are pending before his committee. With 20 nominees stacked up, the potential to get those through before they have to go to the NDAA is pretty great, though. It sounds like there there's a lot of time. May, June, July is two months uh, and, a, and a decent amount of work time, time that the senators are actually in Washington. What's your sense of how quickly some of those nominees could move through, given the people that the administration has selected and the amount of time that's available between now and July when they might start to mark up the NDAA? Well, as you know, uh, getting a nomination through the Senate begins in the Senate Armed Services Committee but it does not end there. And sure, having that time means the committee can do its work. There are a lot of people nominated that will be familiar to the committee. Those who have served in the Obama administration from Mike McCord to Mike Brown uh, to Christine Wormuth and others, Frank Kendall as well. But it also has to go through the full chamber. And no matter how much time you put devoted to nominees, there are many other considerations 
uh, that have to be taken into account that have nothing to do with the Senate Armed Services Committee or the Pentagon. The infrastructure bill, other spending measures that President Biden recently uh, addressed during his joint session to the Congress. Those things will suck up time on the Senate floor, and it could be that the Senate Armed Services Committee gets everything out of committee and it waits at the Senate chamber door. But what I hear you saying unintentionally, so I apologize if I'm reading too much between the lines, but given the fact that we don't start an NDAA till July, all of those other issues that you outlined, other things that may happen between now and the fall that the Senate would have to deal with that we don't know anything about now, it strikes me we're looking at another October, November, December timeline to see what a final policy bill looks like because we haven't even talked about your former committee, the House Armed Services Committee, and their role in getting a bill out and then conference. Is that, is that timeline realistic or am I too pessimistic? No, I think that's realistic. I mean, as you know, even when the Armed Services Committees complete their work in the May-June timeframe, those measures don't get done till September at the earliest. So the fact that the Armed Services Committees are not going to begin their work until July um, doesn't necessarily mean they'll be able to complete their work by, by the end of September, the end of the fiscal year. The likelihood is that it's going to go deeper in to calendar year 2021. And, you know, it's possible that the Armed Services Committees can get their measures to the floor of each chamber and get them voted on. The real trick in getting the authorization bills passed is that conference report. There are always thorny issues. And that is what ultimately creates delays in each chamber adopting the conference report. Do we have a sense yet, Roger, about what the thorny issues could be this year that will, uh, that will drive the conference negotiations among the, the four sides, House uh, Chairman Ranking and Senate Chairman Ranking member? Well, I had a chance to chat with Chairman Adam Smith not too long ago. The Reagan Institute will host an event soon with uh, Senator Reid. My sense is there'll be debate over the nuclear triad and specifically the GBSD program, the ICBM replacement program. That's a, a hot issue. Uh, the F-35 is something that Chairman Smith consistently uh, points to as something he'd like to move on. Uh, and then there's going to be discussions over what the administration refers to as legacy systems. Uh, this is what they reference in the interim national security guidance. The administration would like to see legacy systems pulled out of uh, the military. Question is whether or not the Congress will play along. Those are three major issues that for sure will suck up a lot of time and energy and be debated as defense authorization bill goes through each chamber. Uh, Chairman Smith made some headlines at your event, Roger, when he talked to you about the F-35 um, what was your takeaway from his comments? The, it, what he said was, it, you know, was on the record, obviously. It's out there for people to see. But what was your interpretation of what he had to say about the future of that program? Well, Chairman Smith has been consistent on this point. He has concerns about the cost of the F-35 and its utility as we think about the future of warfare. Uh, our exchange really focused on, okay, if you want to have less F-35s, what will you replace it with? Uh, my consistent argument with him and others is, if you want to move from something we have in hand today, a military platform, a fifth generation fighter that works for us today, to something else, what is that something else? Does it exist for, for the military to actually use, or is it something that only exists on a PowerPoint slide? And that's kind of where uh, our conversation got somewhat colorful. Uh, Roger Zakheim, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back on the program. Thank you.
Up next, human-centered design to get benefits to veterans fast. Straight ahead on Government Matters, adding the human touch to change customer experience for the better. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. This month's Digital VA is brought to you by Pure Storage. The Department of Veterans Affairs is applying human-centered design approaches to all of its services. The agency says it saw a 25% increase in trust in the VA when it first implemented the approach. Lauren Alexanderson's Deputy Chief Technology Officer of Health Delivery at the VA Office of Information and Technology. Lauren, welcome. It's great to talk to you. Give me Thank a, give me a thumbnail you. first of what the... the concept of human-centered design is. Is there, is there a dictionary definition of the term? Well, I would say that the, the concept of human-centered design is really all about uh, putting the user, the human, at, this, at the focus of everything you're doing, right? So I wouldn't say that there's necessarily a textbook definition. I think uh, people have uh, different variations on the theme. But the idea is that anything that you build, anything that you are creating, and this applies to services, this applies to technology, can be done more effectively when you are including the feedback of the user at every single stage of the game. So you may have inadvertently an uh, answered my next question already, Lauren, and that is, when you said anything, is there anything it doesn't apply to? Or, or can you literally apply human-centered design to whatever you're going to build to deliver for the customer, the citizen? You really can apply, apply it to everything. Uh, there are quite a few uh, different sort of approaches to doing human-centered design, but uh, there, you know, there's a Stanford course on using human-centered design to apply to your own life. You can apply it to improving services. You can apply it to even improving the the systems that our internal staff use to process benefits and healthcare. Our focus within the office of the CTO is really on use, applying human-centered design to improve the veteran, caregiver, dependent, and transitioning service member experience. Is there a temptation to look at the concept of human-centered design and say, well, we would have to do it differently at, I don't know, pick the other agency, because we don't do the same thing that VA does? Or can someone apply the same techniques that you use at VA to whatever they're trying to do at some other agency? I'm not going to pick on one, but at some other agency. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as part of the United States Digital Service, um, I, I'm uh, also USDS. We use human-centered design at a lot of different agencies, actually. And uh, it's, it's very much a lot of the same principles, which is to say incorporating user feedback, really listening to them, uh, identifying the context in which they are approaching the products or tools, services, and technology that you're building. So it's you know what you can do that at pretty much any agency the philosophy is very similar uh the what the product you may be building may turn out to be very different depending on the audience that you're trying to reach how has human-centered design helped particularly va in the response to the pandemic we have applied it quite extensively throughout the pandemic and this is really uh 
been a combination of several things, but listening to what veterans are saying are the most important things. There are key questions. And those have shifted during the pandemic. Those have shifted from really concerns about the symptoms, how do I know if I have it, to how does this affect my VA benefits? We did a lot of sort of going on site and seeing the impact when veterans would come in for their healthcare services, going back to a VA medical center. And we used the feedback from staff and from veterans to design a screener that is used at many different facilities now to get people into the uh you know, get people in and passing the screener. We also have used it quite a lot in the vaccine rollout as well to great effect. One of the challenges, Lauren, that government has had historically is is tightening the feedback loop, the time between when they learn what citizens, customers, whatever, think about services and the, the time to actually change that service. What have you been able to do uh, that tightens that feedback loop, the time between when somebody says this isn't working a certain way and the time that you're actually able to fix it? Absolutely. So within the office of the CTO, we take a model where we are literally trying to, you know, apply research, uh, you know, get user feedback on something within a week of designing even a very small concept, a minimum viable product, Uh, get talk to users apply their feedback, make some changes, and go right back to the users again. So really tightening that cycle and making sure that we're trying to get some feedback from users almost every week. We have a little bit less than a minute left. Do those users find that helpful? Do they find that to be a benefit? Or do they find that annoying that you're changing stuff on them all the time? They actually really appreciate that their feedback is getting incorporated. I've I've really enjoyed it, all of the sessions that I've been able to be part of and being able to sort of hear a veteran's feedback, hear a service member's feedback and say, you know what, that's great news, that's great feedback. Let me go make the change for you and let's see if that makes things better for you. Lauren, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. It was nice to talk to you. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show. When you sign up for our daily program guide, you just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time 
about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want, here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again, and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.